in administration, elder law, and real property matters. RourkeLaw.com Welcome to the Local Edition. News and information to keep you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Coming up in the second half of the program, we'll be talking about an event that's uh, coming up on Thursday, put on by the Upper Delaware Council. It's called 3D Visualization of Land Use in the Upper Delaware Corridor, and that's exactly what it's about. A 3D model designed by scientists attempting to answer the question, what would the river corridor look like if it was fully developed under current zoning laws? Dr. Claire Jantz of Shippensburg University will join us in the second half of the program. Before that, we'll check in with Dr. Jonathan Nasser of Crystal Run Healthcare talking about the surge in RSV infections and also other respiratory contagions going around right now. But first, we look at some news coming out of Albany in New York State. Appears to be a victory uh, for environmental activists that were lobbying for this legislation. The state's environmental agency is going to begin a study on the impacts of a form of cryptocurrency mining that requires large amounts of energy from fossil fuels because Governor Kathy Hochul has signed a bill that bans the practice in New York for two years. Karen DeWitt has more. Just before Thanksgiving, Governor Kathy Hochul quietly signed the measure. It imposes a two-year moratorium on new state permits for the crypto mining process known as proof of work. That process uses vast amounts of energy from fossil fuel sources to power computers. They solve complex equations to mine the bitcoins. Hochul, in her signing statement, said the measure is the first of its kind in the country and a key step toward addressing the global climate crisis. The governor speaking with reporters a few days later, says the law is not a ban on the Bitcoin industry, but only on the energy draining processes that rely on fossil fuels. This was an action taken to protect our environment from facilities that consume an enormous, enormous amount of energy and with a very little gain in terms of jobs or benefit to the local communities. The new law stems from adverse reaction to a crypto mining operation along Seneca Lake in the heart of the state's winemaking region. Connecticut-based company Greenwich Generation Holdings converted an old coal-burning plant to natural gas, and they've been using it for Bitcoin mining. Yvonne Taylor with Seneca Lake Guardian says getting the measure approved was a Herculean effort by grassroots advocates, businesses, and elected officials. We are grateful to Governor Hochul, who stepped up to protect New Yorkers from the corporate bullies that want to exploit communities like mine in the Finger Lakes. Taylor says the crypto mining industry spent $1.2 million lobbying against the measure. The ban, though, is only for new operations. It does not apply to the Greenwich plant or to a recently established crypto mining facility at a repurposed coal plant in North Tonawanda. The state's business council opposes the law, saying they don't think state government should categorically limit the growth and expansion of any business or sector in New York. Hochul, who was speaking in Gloversville in the Mohawk Valley, says she supports the Bitcoin industry. And she says the state law still allows crypto mining if it uses renewable energy sources like hydro, wind or solar power. I have said I support the crypto industry. It does not mean that they have to be using our limited resources here in upstate to create the do the mining that supports it. The state's Department of Environmental Conservation, working with the Department of Public Service, which regulates the state's utilities, will now begin work on a generic environmental impact statement. It will determine whether proof-of-work crypto mining from fossil fuels is harmful to the climate. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. 
And thank you to New York State Public Radio Exchange for that report from Karen DeWitt. Thank you for joining us here on the local edition. Right now, we're letting you know that cases of RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, are continuing to rise in the Hudson Valley. In fact, there's a surge, especially in cases among young children. What does this mean as we head into the winter months, which are typically the season for respiratory viruses that include the flu, COVID, and now RSV as well? Patricio Rabio spoke with Dr. Jonathan Nasser, internal medicine and pediatrics physician at Crystal Run Healthcare earlier today about why this surge is happening. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about RSV. RSV is a, an old nemesis of ours. We've been dealing with RSV in pediatrics in particular, but also in, in older adults for many years. And in general, like other respiratory illnesses, it is a fall virus that typically is seasonal. And we start to typically see it in October. And it kind of runs for a few months and then settles down again. Um, so what's happening right now in the community is not unusual in terms of the time of year. Um, it's a little unusual in the sense that we're seeing a lot of other illnesses. And so there's just a lot of respiratory illness right now. And RSV is getting attention, but we're also seeing it in the context of existing, um, you know, COVID, which is still around and, and influenza, which is peaking a little bit or starting to be present a little bit earlier than usual. So all three are happening together and that's overwhelming schools, doctors' offices, hospitals. Um, and I think for that reason, you know, it's been covered in the press a lot, RSV, but um, it's really not new. But in, in the light of all of these things happening together, we're getting a lot of attention with it now. Since we are seeing a surge of RSV, but also, like you just mentioned, COVID and the flu, can you tell us what are some of the hallmarks that can help distinguish between those different illnesses? Because they are similar. Yeah, and, and that's where it's challenging. They're actually, you know, when we see somebody in the office nowadays with a respiratory illness, we test for all three because they are, in many cases, indistinguishable. Um, just talking about RSV first, and then I think it might be easier to say that RSV has a couple of things that are that are slightly concerning to us. One is it is very, you know, potentially dangerous for young infants. And so as pediatricians, and I, I didn't share, but I'm a pediatrician and an internist, so I see all ages. But as pediatricians, we do get worried about young infants and in particular former preemies and babies who may have an underlying condition like a heart problem for with RSV because it causes a very characteristic syndrome called bronchiolitis. And bronchiolitis in a young baby causes wheezing and trouble breathing, fast breathing, and low oxygen levels. And that's a little bit different than flu or COVID in that population. Flu and COVID in young infants doesn't seem to be quite as severe in most cases, and it doesn't generally cause a wheezing illness. So for us as physicians, we worry about young infants, and it also has a little bit of a different clinical picture. For parents you know, of young infants, they can be very difficult to distinguish. Uh, and so typically, if you have a fever and a cough and an upper respiratory infection, it could be any of those things. And, you know, reasons we would want you to be concerned and potentially to reach out to your doctor would be really high fever that's not coming down. Your your baby is not able to feed because they can't catch their breath. Um, they have some color changes. They're not peeing their normal amount because they're, they're not able to feed. And so those are some of the clues that whatever it is, RSV, flu or COVID, um, you know, we sh- we'd want to hear from you and to get additional attention. Can you test for RSV? There is. And in fact, we all often, you know, our hospitals are overwhelmed and so are the physician offices, but we do think in many cases, these questions can go to the, to a, a parent's pediatrician or a family medicine doctor who takes care of them because in many cases, you know, we, we are able to evaluate and treat in the office. So there is an RSV test. It's been around for a long time. Um, it's, uh, there's two different types, just like flu and COVID. There's an antigen test or a rapid test 
and there's a PCR. Most of the time we do the antigen test. Um, it's, it, we get an answer back fairly quickly. One of the struggles, though, for all of these things is, <clears throat> especially in infants, there's not a lot of treatment. So for me, in most cases, we offer supportive care, um, you know, which includes, you know, hydration and TLC and controlling fever. In some situations in immunocompromised children and adults, you know, there are treatments for COVID. Paxlovid is out. I think most people know about that now. And there are treatments for influenza, an old standard called Tamiflu. But RSV doesn't have one of those. So typically, you know, we we try to just give supportive care for someone who's diagnosed with RSV. And most of the press that I'm seeing is dealing with young children, but I understand that older adults or immune-compromised adults can also be infected with RSV. Is that correct? Yeah, I think all of us are at risk to get RSV. I, I think one way to think about it, I think about RSV in an adult, it's that really bad cold that you feel like you have like a, a, a pain in your chest when you cough, and you feel like you have like this really sort of crud in your chest that you just can't cough up. That That, I think, is the clinical symptoms that an adult may have when they have RSV. And we're all at risk to get it. You know, we're not wearing masks anymore and we're all gathering, which, which I think we're all happy about. But it does it's one of the reasons we think the RSV is, is surging right now in the sense that we're all kind of celebrating being back together. In the older adults so who have other health problems, RSV can tip them over into a more serious condition. So, for example, when somebody who maybe was a smoker or someone with asthma or someone who has heart disease Having RSV is an additional stress on their sit on their system and may cause them to require hospitalization because they have low oxygen levels. And in some cases, RSV can cause it can, can can produce a secondary pneumonia, and that might lead to an older adult being hospitalized. Um, and so that's why we worry about that group. Similarly, as I mentioned, we also worry about the really young infants. Everybody in between, usually with RSV, has just a bad cold and maybe a fever, but doesn't tend to have the more serious complications that we see most commonly with COVID and less commonly with influenza. RSV is even less common than those two in terms of having a more serious illness in most people. Like this illness can be treated most most times at home for young children. and But I've seen personally things on my Facebook uh, among friends that some of their young children are going to the hospital for this. What could change? You mentioned it before, but let's mention it again. What could change for a young child to be going from the home to the hospital? Yeah, so usually I think a good a good thing to be thinking about as we're talking to parents about this when they're worried is uh, their child can't catch their breath. They're really short of breath because RSV can cause kind of a viral pneumonia like COVID. And one of the symptoms of that is just rapid breathing in a young baby can't feed because they can't catch their breath. In an older child, maybe who has a history of asthma, they're wheezing a lot and the their normal medicine for asthma isn't working. So the most common reason why we would say, hey, you know what, you need to go to the hospital is that we're hearing from a parent that they have a child who has symptoms of RSV and they just, they can't breathe, they're short of breath, and they may be in a situation where their their oxygen levels are low, where they're going to need some supportive respiratory treatments like we might do with asthma. Now, unfortunately, those those treatments for asthma don't work very well with RSV. We try them anyway because we don't have a lot to offer, but kind of nebulized saline or kind of you know, sort of humidification um, with with oxygen together is it works as well as anything um, when somebody has RSV. But typically, many of these children who do get into trouble have had a history of asthma. And so they end up receiving some of their asthma medicine in an effort to try to help them feel better. With RSV on the rise, what can we do for young children or as adults to help better protect ourselves from getting infected? Yeah, I think it's just, it's kind of the same 
roadmap that we've had with COVID for a while. And I'm not suggesting that we wear masks, but what I think we all should just be careful about is when you're sick, stay home. Um, when you're out in public, you know, if you're around other folks, wash your hands before you eat. Um, if you're in a big crowded space with people coughing, that is something that if you, if you have risk factors, you should avoid. I am seeing some people wearing masks in public. Um, I'm not asking them why, but I'm assuming it's because they may have some individual risk factors that they're worried about COVID. Those same risk factors should make them worried about RSV. And so if you are somebody that does have risk factors, you know, avoiding crowded spaces and others is a good idea. Parents of young infants should avoid bringing their infants out into public. And if people are coming over to your home, they shouldn't come if they're sick. I think those are the, the basic things. Wash your hands, cover your cough, stay home when you're not feeling well. Are all the, the same for COVID, influenza, and RSV. Um, they're all good practices. You know, it's not a coincidence that for the last two years when we've been doing some of those things, you know, staying away from large crowds and and being so careful about hand washing and in some situations wearing masks, we haven't seen much flu in RSV the last couple of years. Um, and again, I'm not advocating that we go back to wearing masks, but we've been doing other things too, social distancing and staying home when we're sick. And it's been really difficult. We've had to stay home and get notes from doctors if our kids are out of school and Parents have been frustrated by the, their child being sent home when they're coughing. But those things actually have reduced the spread of all of the respiratory illnesses. And now that we're kind of back to the old way, we're just seeing them more again. And, you know, some balance of caution and still freedom, I think, um, to be out and around each other is warranted. Um, and those are the same things that help us stay healthy throughout the respiratory season for all of those illnesses that we've been talking about. Uh, Dr. Nasser, before we go, is there anything else I haven't touched on that you want our listeners to know about? Um, I just maybe just two quick things. One is that, you know, um, definitely reach out to your doctor with questions. I think this is where we can be helpful. Um, the CDC has some excellent information on their website. At Crystal Run, um, we're going to be putting out some information. We'll be getting a lot of questions about RSV. So look for that on our social media posts and on our website as well. Um, there's a lot of misinformation. I think RSV has been getting a lot of press right now. And I think having a, some balanced information from a healthcare professional can help you make that decision about, you know, what's best to do if you're concerned. Um, the hospitals are overwhelmed and I, we love our local hospitals, but I think, you know, where we can be, be helping stay, uh, keep people out of the hospitals is certainly a good thing to do too. Um, and as we talked about here, I think, you know, in terms of prevention, just some basic, you know, kind of respiratory illness hygiene is a good idea for anything. And, you know, we're in that situation now as we move into winter when we're all gathering and people are indoors more. And you know, I think just having some common sense around that can help everybody stay healthy. We were talking to Dr. Jonathan Nasser, internal medicine and pediatrics physician at Crystal Run Healthcare, talking about RSV and what you can do to stay safe. Thank you so much, Dr. Nasser, for joining us on the program. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. For Radio Catsco, I'm Patricio Robayo. Thank you, Patricio, for that report. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll learn about the 3D visualization of land use in the Upper Delaware Corridor presentation happening on Thursday. Uh, we'll give you a sneak peek of it tonight. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of two Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep. Where you give on Giving Tuesday reflects your values. When you donate to this NPR station, it's an act of enlightened self-interest. It's for you. It's for a service you use, but it's also for the community. It ensures the future of fact-based journalism. It takes all of us to make that happen. So give now. Make your donation at WJFFRadio.org. And thank you for remembering Radio Catskill on this Giving Tuesday. 
Hi, I'm Erin West. Join us this Saturday as we host the Berryville Tree Lighting. We've planned a fun evening of music and holiday cheer for you to enjoy right from the comfort of your own living room. We'll be broadcasting live on WJFF, the Berryville Tree Lighting. Saturday at 6 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to the local edition, keeping you connected in the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm Jason Dole, and the Upper Delaware Council, the UDC, is hosting a presentation uh, that's called 3D Visualization of the Land Use in the Upper Delaware Corridor. And that's happening, uh, coming right up Thursday, December 1st at 7 p.m. In Narrowsburg, public presentations are going to be given virtually by Dr. Claire Jantz and Alfonso Yanez Morillo from the Center for Land Use and Sustainability, or CLUS, at Shippensburg University. And the whole thing is about the pilot study to create a visualization tool for communities in the Upper Delaware Scenic Recreational Corridor. And on the phone with us now is one of those presenters, Dr. Claire Jantz, Professor, Department of Geography, Earth Science at Schiffenberg University. Dr. Jantz, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to talk about this work. So well, let's let's talk about the work. Can you start off by just explaining more uh, of what folks can expect at this talk and, uh, and include with that, like, what is a 3D visualization of land use? <laughs> Yeah, so um, we were approached by the National Park Conservation Association, which, um, if you're not familiar with them, they're they're a nonprofit, and they kind of work to promote and protect um, national parks across the country. Um, there is an interest in the um, the Upper Delaware uh, Scenic River, um, and um, and I had been doing some work in the Delaware River Basin and, in, and specifically in the Upper Delaware related to kind of land use changes, you know, like new houses and new buildings going in. Um, and, and so they um, connected with me and uh, kind of laid out this idea um, where they wanted to see what the landscape would look like if it was built out according to current zoning regulations. Um, and they wanted it to be visual and interactive, uh, and they wanted it in three dimensions. And um, we at the CLUS, um, we have a lot of expertise in kind of creating online interactive maps, but this would be our first time kind of working in three dimensions. Um, and so basically, um, what we did was we created a three-dimensional model of two towns in the Upper Delaware. We looked at the town of Tustin and the, or sorry, the, the town of Tustin and the township of Lackawaxen. Um, and, you know, I mean, we built it digitally from the ground up. We started with the, with the terrain. Um, we replicated um, buildings and houses and towns and roads um, and trees and forests. Um, Can I just and, pause for a moment and and just ask you, how did you yeah, yeah. get that terrain information? Is this coming from, you know, satellite technology, LIDAR, things like that? Or is it just the, the yeah. info that you have about elevation and things like that, contour lines? 
So, yeah, great question. Um, one of the most important data sets that we worked with was a, um, a LIDAR data set, which stands for light detection and ranging. And, you know, essentially that, um, that's data that, that's collected from airplanes for the most part. Um, and they fly above and shoot lasers down and then measure how long it takes for the laser reflection to return. And that gives us height. Um, and the cool thing about LIDAR, right, is that it gives us a really good picture of what the terrain on the ground is. It's actually called a digital surface model. So we're able to kind of repre represent um, the terrain on the ground. But some of those laser points are also hitting rooftops and treetops. And so um, you can sort of pull out of that LIDAR data um, the height and footprints of buildings as well as um, trees and tree canopy. And wow. we incorporated all of that information into our, into our map. I was going to yeah. say, it's, it's you, cool got, you got pulled from a lot of different sources after that to kind of interpolate it to make the final model. Yeah, and actually to make it look really nice <laughs> um, required a lot of like manual, you know, uh, kind of editing. So the, 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 the data that we could grab from LIDAR would give us, you know, the idea that there was a, a building there, but then we kind of had to model this is, this is the shape, the walls, the windows, the doors, the, the rooftops um, to make the buildings look more or less real. I will say that most of the buildings that we represent are represented pretty generally, but there are some buildings like the Zane Gray House. Um, that we put in some extra time to make sure that that really looked like the Zane Gray House. And other, you know, things like churches, like landmark buildings, we put in extra time to make sure that they looked, that they look real. Yeah, no, no, notable structures, yeah. notable structures people can use as visual landmarks while, uh, you know, not, not giving away a whole lot of detail on private residences. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. So I, um, I'm taken with the idea, though, that this was all... Uh, it sounds like the UDC network is, is kind of saying, well, we want to see if, if the laws on the books now are followed for potential build outs, what, what would happen if, if the area was built up according to existing zoning laws? Is, is this the sort of thing you, you ever get asked? I know this is the first time you've kind of worked with 3D, but is it, are these the sorts of questions that you're asked by other entities to look at? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, um, one of the things that, that led us to working with the National Parks Conservation Association and the, and the UDC was um, work that we had done in the Upper Delaware and then for the um, Delaware River Basin, the whole basin, um, which was to essentially kind of create maps of what urban development would look like in the future. So we did that, you know, again, for the whole Delaware River Basin, um, and then, you know, we also looked at like, well, you know, what would the forest look like if urban development happened this way? Um, what would um, what would flooding and stormwater runoff look like if development happened in this way across these areas? So, um, so I think the upper the the UDC was certainly familiar with that work. And then when the folks from the MPCA um, reached out to us, they were familiar with that work, and they were like, that was all done in two dimensions, and we would like it. We'd like to see the 3D version, like, but in in pretty good detail, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and 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 I'll also tell you that 
the tools that we use um, are part of the ESRI or ESRI um, ArcGIS toolkit. Um, and, but those tools were mostly developed to look at like a few city blocks. And so, I mean, I know a township or a town isn't a huge study area, but to render it in the level of detail that we did, um, we kind of pushed the limit on what these tools can do. And we actually had to, we had to be pretty, we had to come up with some uh, some some workarounds for how to represent, for example, forests in a way that wouldn't, um, you know, crash everyone's computer when they try to load it up. So, I mean, that, that's what you were set out to to find. You're you're doing a presentation. You're like unveiling this coming up on Thursday evening. But um, can you give us a, an idea, a nutshell version of what it is that you found? Well, yeah. So I think you know the main. Um, value added or, or what we bring to the table, I guess, is this kind of, again, sort of visualization so that people can actually kind of zoom in and look to see what's really going to happen. And and what we see is that, um, like, in some of the smaller, you know, denser towns, we actually um, introduced like infill. So if there were parcels there that were open, we said, okay, let's go ahead and develop them because they're zoned for development. Um, but you do see, the other thing that you see is quite a lot of single family homes that, that get, that could be developed, you know, kind of in the forest. And so even if the zoning, for example, is, you know, one house per acre, when you kind of see that built out, you know, it definitely makes for a different feel to the landscape. Um, and so, so yeah, so we have, uh, you know, so, so again, you'll, you can sort of see that on these maps, um, the kind of, and that might surprise some people, I think, because um, there is a tendency to, you know, just kind of get used to the way things look um or the way things are um and also that a lot of these changes especially up in this part of the world where you know there's not really rapid development or a lot of population growth pressure they happen incrementally and kind of you know a little bit at a time but what we're able to show is kind of the accumulation of all what all of those incremental changes might look like I, I grew up in this area and it's not really until I think I've kind of reached this age that I'm at, like in, in my forties that I can really, really, I drive around and I look and I, I know that it was different. I can see that it was different, but I can't quite remember what it was. You know, I just, just uh -huh. last week driving to my house in the last mile before my house, I'm like, I know there are more houses on this road than there were when I was a kid. But now, but but yeah. which ones exactly? I'm not sure. Yeah, and I mean, I know that there's um, there's there's different ways to look at at this. You know, like to put value judgments on this is a good thing or it's a bad thing. Um, you know, our focus is just to kind of show like this is what it would look like, and um, and whether you see it as like, well, this is death by a thousand cuts, or you might see it as in like, well, actually, we could use a lot of new residents then. Um, then, you know, these maps would, would show that future.
Right, right. And I mean, even if it makes people say, well, I don't exactly want that, it helps people make an informed decision about exactly what they do want. So um, yeah, this exactly. is really interesting. Uh, is there anything else about this that you want folks to know that we didn't get to? Um, well, I, I need to give my acknowledgments. <laughs> um, I think um, I want to make sure to call out Lori Ramey at the Upper Delaware Council um, and um, the, the National Park Service, the, the Upper Delaware Scenic and Recreational River, um, and Sharon Davis at the National Parks Conservation Association. Um, she was our main contact there, and she wanted me to make sure to say that funding came from the National Park Conservation Association um, from a grant that they got from the William Penn Foundation. Okay, well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. More information uh, is at UpperDelawareCouncil.org. This presentation that you are putting on is coming up uh, this Thursday evening at 7 o'clock at the Upper Delaware Council office in Narrowsburg. And we've been talking to Dr. Claire Jantz, professor from the Department of Geography, Earth Science at Shippensburg University. Dr. Jantz, thank you so much for taking the time to explain this to us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Well, that's going to do it for the local edition tonight. Thank you to all of our guests. Thank you for listening. Remember, we will be back tomorrow and every weekday evening here on Radio Catskill starting at 6.30. Stay tuned. Coming up next, it's Music Emporium with Kusar Grace. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Garnet Health Medical Center, Catskills. Garnet Health, going above and beyond to elevate care every day for every person. Learn more at garnethealth.org. Exceptional lives here. And from The Cooperage Project in Honesdale, dedicated to building community through performance, learning, markets, and good times. TheCooperageProject.org. And from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org.